Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me, as always, is that immortal harpy, Jeff Goad, and I'm your co-host, Hoy. <laughs> this week, we're very... Ka, ka. Ka, ka. <laughs> Don't run. Don't run. <laughs> this week, we're very honored to have our, our special guest, Brian Cortejo, a uh, designer of, uh, among other things, Se- Second Darkness Adventure Path, uh, Second Darkness for Pathfinder, uh, credited on Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, and for all the City of the Blue Rose, and contributor to multiple Dungeon uh, Dragon Magazine articles. Hello, Brian. Hi, guys. So, Brian, uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, secret origin story as a gamer. I've been playing D&D since about eight, nine years old. Um, I distinctly remember when we were kids um, grabbing from the, of all places, book and magazine shelf at Toys R Us, the uh, second edition player's handbook. Um, I have a twin brother, so um, we never um, lacked for somebody to talk about the game with, play, you know, even simple stuff, create characters. Um, but we um, we had a lot of uh, nerdy friends and were the nerdy kids. And so we, we had a lot of um, reinforcement of the habit, as it were, when we were younger. Um, we were fortunate enough when we went to summer camp to have counselors that would... Um, that wanted to play D and D with us, right? So we, um, we would we would sit in the back. We went to day camp for a few years before we went to sleepaway camp, and uh, they had um, a computer lab, but there was a big table in the back of the computer lab, and so all the kids that wanted to play D and D would sit at the at the big sure, table and play D and D, um, and it was uh, it kind of grew from there. You know, we would. Um, Rather than paying attention during Hebrew school lessons after school, we would sit in the back and 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 trade notes about D and D characters, and um, uh, you know, th- rather than reading the age appropriate novels uh, for kids our age in 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 elementary and junior high school, we were reading Dragonlance and later Forgotten Realms novels. Um, it was it was a, it was pretty much it's pretty much been a since the beginning kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned meeting Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms tie-ins. Um, was that your journey into broader reading of fantasy and speculative fiction, or was that already happening at the same time? Um, I, it was kind of intermixed. You know, mm-hmm. there's there are there are stories that are kind of clearly targeted to a younger audience, and you know we were exposed to those. But once you're in the, you know given my age, you know, there used to be bookstores. <laughs> so once you're in that section of the bookstore, you know, seeing the fantasy novels and the science fiction novels, you kind of start to absorb that stuff. And, and you know, when you're a younger kid, you're looking, you're not really looking for specific stuff. You're looking for the stuff that you recognize. So you're looking for the Dragonlance logo. You're looking for the Forgotten Realms logo. And then once you're in that area of the store, you're grabbing whatever looks cool. Mm-hmm. Right. So we grabbed some, I mean, Star Wars was already a thing for us, but, you know, grabbed Star Wars novels, um, other fantasy stuff, other science fiction stuff. And, you know, a lot of it's a blur because um, just like you don't remember every episode of your favorite Saturday morning cartoon, you don't, you know, you read the stuff, you get through it and then you're on to the next thing as a kid. 
but it really created in me a, a, a love for those kinds of stories for, um, you know, for fantasy, for, for, for adventure. Right. And you're known as kind of being an expert on lore or being able to retain a lot of that and sort of communicate that, that in your work as a designer and, and such. And how did that, was that something that was always there or something that sort of accrued over time, you know, in terms of like, oh, I, I really can hold this in my mind and, and it makes sense to me and I can com- communicate that to other people. That that started later um, as I, part of it was as I started um, designing stuff. Um, and part of it is because I like for things to make sense. I like for, I like for as fantastical as these worlds are, um, once you accept the truths of them, there's a certain logic to how they operate and a certain um, if you, if you're trying hard enough, an understanding about what the rules of the world are and um, what might happen if you inserted this particular um, factor, you know. So if if this if this character goes off to war and dies, what's going to happen in the region that they're from? You know, what how, what are the power dynamics? What monsters might grow out of that hero no longer existing? That kind of stuff. And so, thinking about those things, I, I kind of sharpened those skills when I was in my in my twenties. And um, uh, I was fortunate enough to develop some friendships with people who were already in the industry and had um, had that as part of their job, mm-hmm. um, uh, both within some companies and and outside outside of the companies and so um to you know in part to continue developing those friendships but also to kind of sharpen those skills and make sure that i was qualified to participate in writing some of the things that i've been fortunate enough to get to write over the years um you know you have to you have to keep those those skills sharp Mm -hmm. uh i like i like i like when when worlds make sense even when they're completely made up Um, so the histories should make sense. The people should feel like people, Mm -hmm. you know, you should feel like if, if I showed up in this world that I, that, that I can expect certain things to happen. Um, I'm a big proponent, um, when you're talking about gaming worlds of the, the worlds being worth your attention and Mm -hmm. not just a place to put your toys. Interesting. Okay. So stuff that's a little bit more kitchen sink is not so much in your wheelhouse, uh, at least from what you're saying. Well, that's part of it. But also, I mean, even when it is kitchen sink, you know, the the people should feel real. They should feel like sure. they have real motivations, like they have real histories, um, and like they have things that they're doing even when the PCs aren't there. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And it'll be interesting when we come to, to this week's book. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit too, Brian. Um, you're known also now for doing a lot of work about uh, decolonizing so and uh, you've participated in a number of panels on decolonizing RPGs, and you know with that comes diversity and inclusion work. Um, so your first adventure that put people on the you know put you on the map was about the Drow. Can we still use the Drow? Can we still use the Orcs? Well, how can we do this? You know, I'm trying to summarize a very complex issue <laughs> in a very short answer. Um, yes, people can play Drow. People can use Drow as enemies in their games, but the the issue is when you take any people, any species, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm loath to use the word race, um, uh, but when you take any group of people and assume that they are fundamentally, irredeemably evil, right? It, rather than, first of all, because I think it's sloppy and lazy writing, 
um, rather than saying because of the material realities of this particular world, this group of people has engaged in this kind of activity in order to survive. They've developed these sorts of enmities between them and this tribe or nation or kingdom or city or whatever because of an, a, a developed reasoned history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to say that, oh, well, they follow this god, so they must be evil. Or um, they come from this land, so they must be evil. Or they're descended from this group of people, so they must be evil. Is, I think, um, it's problematic on its face because we don't want anyone to be treated that way. But it also, when you dig deeper into it, it you wind up seeing the same sorts of language that real-world racists use in their real-world real world racism. Mm-hmm. Right, and that um, in the past, real, real, actual colonialists and colonizers have used to justify their colonialism. So, if you read um, descriptions of orcs, for example, um, and I'm gonna, again, I'll try and summarize this. Um, basically, the, the 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 there are three justifications for why it's okay to kill orcs. Right, they follow evil gods. Um, they are um they they come from an evil culture or they are um irredeemably evil and even if you manage to quote raise one right so if they were raised by elves or humans and quote civilized they would still eventually revert to their evil ways anyway and if you if you if you're a stu- student of history you see that those same kinds of justifications come up for why it's okay to colonize this group or that group why it's right. okay to have the, displace uh... The native schools in Canada and the United States here that have happened, or Australia, that kind of stuff right. like that. Exactly. You know, the, the, those residential schools, um, taking kids away from their parents, um, taking over entire entire continents, because hey, why not? There, there's nothing redeemable about this group anyway, and so that's for me. That's where the where the the fundamental core issues come up with is you have to treat every people like like they're humans, whether they're human or not in, in game terms, right? Like they have the, the benefit of moral agency and the, the right to choose their own path. Now, whether they choose the right path or not is a different question. Right. And they may be fundamentally antagonistic to the assumptions of, quote unquote, the PC's culture, but those are for material historical reasons that exist within the game world. They should be. Right. They should grow out of, they should grow out of conditions that you can justify beyond a God made it so, um, or, you know, Oh, well, they were born this species instead of that species. You know, it's, it, you know, there's, if you're talking about worlds that have 30,000 years of documented history, you know, Oh, well there there's evil in their blood. is not a good enough explanation. I mean, I would almost argue that what happened would be the gods would be the man, rather than the gods justifying the evil, the gods would be the manifestation of the antagonism. The, the collective manifestation of the antagonisms, and that would be how you could have your "quote unquote" evil gods. Um, and then, well, I'm not, I'm not arguing that they're that they're that they wouldn't have evil gods, right? Right, right. No, right. You know, yeah. uh, and I'm not I'm not even saying that they might not embrace those those you know figures. What I'm saying is that there there needs to be more. There needs to be more meat on the bone, because uh, in all those centuries, there hasn't been one or five or a dozen. 
people who have rebelled against that. There hasn't been one good aligned or even neutral aligned orc deity to say, hey, wait a minute, come with me, we'll, we'll have this little area over here. They have to be saved by human deities and human heroes. And that, that to me, always rubs me the wrong way. That you, Because then you have the, the, the analogous white savior complex of we're going to come in and we're going to fix it for you because you can't fix it yourselves. Jeff, you have anything to, uh, we've, we've talked about this in the past, but maybe not in this level of detail and thought. So it's really, it's, I'm really happy to hear about that, Brian. Um, no, I think this is a fascinating conversation and I'm really enjoying listening to the two of you talk about it. And I'm also looking forward to talking about the last unicorn. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And, uh, any books in particular that you think would be of great value to gamers as either sources of inspiration, uh, fiction or nonfiction? So I'm going to cheat a little bit because I know that this uh, this book series doesn't appear in the original Appendix N, but it does appear in the analogous um, set of um, uh, of books in the new Player's Handbook. And that's uh, the Chronicles of Pridane, uh in particular Terran Wanderer. Sure. Um, I really loved those books as a kid. Um uh, and I thought it was really interesting when it, cause it's those book the books are contemporary roughly to the last unicorn. And when I was reading the book, there's actually a line that seems to particularly be calling out, um, the Chronicles of Pridane. Um, and we, I guess we could talk about that later, but I like it because it, it, it presents a world, um, where heroes are needed, but have to go through a particular set of growth it's it's not um here's the answer there's failure involved i think it's really important when heroes get to fail but also that the it, um in that particular book the 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 hero has to produce the means of his own victory mm-hmm. that there is there is something that has to be forged literally <laughs> out of out of the character um he has to forge his own his own um his own success right and it's funny you call that uh specifically terran wanderer because that's i came into that series just picked that book i didn't know that those three other books before that as well too when yeah. i read it as a child so that's <laughs> uh, so lloyd alexander's chronicles of pridane yes terrific terrific great recommendation uh so as jeff had mentioned this week we're reading uh peter s beagles uh the last unicorn uh before we get into it uh we have uh any candidates for high gaxian word Jeff, or I have, I think I'm going to go with Adams. I think that's a good one. All right, let's do it. All right. The word of the week is, well, can't get the button to work. Weasoned. Weasoned, which means throat or gullet. Weasoned. There it goes. Weasoned. (laughs) And it comes up in the context of the, uh, when Schmendrick the wizard has been kidnapped by the, uh, the uh, forest bandits and Molly Grew says, he, he's no townsman. I don't like the look of him. Slit his wizard. She had meant to say either weasoned or gizzard and had said both, but the coincidence trailed down Schmendrick's spine like a wet seaweed. <laughs> so, weasoned. Nice. There you go. All right. With that, let's talk about The Last Unicorn. Um, I'm working with the uh, paperback version from 1968, but I've got the 14th printing from 1979. And it's got this gorgeous Gervasio Gallardo cover with the unicorn kind of prancing on the front. And then if you turn around to the back, we see that we've got the harpy Solano in her cage and the snake up in the tree. And in addition to reading that, reading that particular paperback, I also listened to the audiobook where uh, Peter S. Beagle himself does the recording. 
Terrific. And what, what edition are you working there with, Brian? Uh, so I, I actually bought a new one. Uh, the, I have the first 40th anniversary uh, printing from 2008. Which may uh, or just, come up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, for listeners, I was holding it up to the camera. Sorry. <laughs> um, and uh, it doesn't have any special ads in, into it, but um, uh, I like it. I mean, it, it was pretty. I like um, supporting uh, authors and their estates. Um, I don't even know if, whether this particular author is still around with us or not. He is. He is. Oh, that's great. So, um, and he only recently got the rights back to this book. Very set, complex and sad story. Yeah. In fact, I'm reading the book that was when he was being man- managed by his, uh, I guess, uh, con man manager and who he sued and got the rights back from. Uh, so I'm reading the, del- the deluxe edition from 2007. Uh, but it does have his coda story, which he wrote 40 years later called Two Hearts, which is not present in all editions. Um, it's not at all necessary to read that to get the full value of last unicorn but i think it's a lovely story so if you guys get a chance you should seek out the story two hearts uh which is available also in other anthologies all right so brian very quickly uh, or not at all at your leisure uh what was your impression of this book well i i want to i want to preface this by saying i have never seen the film um even at my ripe old age um and this was my first time reading the book so um, I, I'm coming at it as a as an adult, a parent of two children, um, a longtime D and D player, but not as someone who is returning to the book. Um, and I liked it very much. Uh, I thought it was interesting in that I think it has a sense of humor that a lot of fantasy novels don't have about mm-hmm. itself. But also, it was it, it had a really modern sensibility, mm-hmm. not just in the sense that it was okay with using modern words like bottle cap and judo or magazine or magazine right yeah. it's very clear that the that uh, beagle doesn't much care about anachronism in that sense um but also it was um okay we're here to tell a story and the story itself is supposed to be timeless because we're talking about a timeless creature and so it's okay to say to let slip in things that a modern reader would understand um, that might not have made sense to someone living in this proposed fictional time mm-hmm. that um, clearly didn't happen in the first place. You know, it's a made up story, but um, I, I really enjoyed that, that it was okay to, that, that he was okay with not taking himself overly seriously. I was interested. Uh, I came to this for the first time too, and then, but Jeff, you've been living. You had not read the book, but you've been living with the movie for a very long time. Is that right, Jeff? That's correct. So I grew up obsessed with this movie. I've probably seen this movie more than a hundred times in my life. It was a very important part of my childhood, and even when I revisit it as an adult, I still just absolutely love it. But I also recognize that my love of the film is pretty rooted in nostalgia because when I show the film to other adults who had not seen it before, they do not tend to be as enamored with it as I am. So I recognize the role that nostalgia plays in my love of the film. However, the the book, I, I, I this is my first time reading it and I'm just thrilled to, I, I, I loved this book. The movie has already got a real ring of melancholy to it but the melancholy is turned up to 11 in this particular book. Uh, just there's so much uh, sadness, 
so much pondering over death and aging and the things we've lost and dreams we have for ourselves that may or may not ever come to fruition. Uh, Just really interesting, complex, sad topics that are being explored in very thoughtful and interesting ways, which is surprising from a book that you look at the cover of it and like it looks like it's going to be like a cute little story about a unicorn having some adventure and you pick it up and the the reality of the story is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, actually, I want to pick at a couple things that um, since you had seen this both from the eyes of a child and now you're seeing this and now we're all seeing this the coming to the text for the first time as essentially middle aged adults. Um one thing that was interesting is he wrote this literally when he was in his mid and late twenties, right? Yeah. Um, obviously, times change. What kind of responsibilities are piled on people? I mean, what kind of expectations and visions of adulthood may have changed in the last fifty years? But what did did that? You know that that melancholy, Brian. Did that? What was the resonance for you there? Did you say, "Oh, this is someone I who has seen the kind of things that now that I now have also lived through," or you know, or was this like? Um, I think there's something bittersweet about the book. I want to agree with with Jeff there. There's a there's a grief to it, but it's a joyous grief. Um, but I I liken it to um, uh, Aerosmith's "Dream On." Steven Tyler was 19 when he wrote that song, and he's talking about looking in the mirror and seeing the lines getting deeper and and the the acknowledgement of aging. Yeah. And I think there's a sometimes the story allows you to understand something that you might not otherwise understand. But there's also a certain wisdom to someone so young understanding already that they're going to lose youth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we all we always say that youth is wasted on the young. Um. But understanding at such a young age that there are things in the world that you're going to try and hold on to but can't, that um, are going to be beautiful but in their beauty not last. And I think that that's um, not everybody's lucky enough to have that kind of understanding before it's happened. And it also seems like many of the characters here, if not all of them, are seeking something that they may never actually be able to find or that seems just out of reach um, or, or they have regret over the things that they didn't, that they weren't able to accomplish. You know, Molly grew when she meets the unicorn and she's like, damn you, where have you been? Why do you come to me now? She's getting so upset because she's 38 years old. And now she sees the unicorn when this is something she had dreamt of ever since she was young And she's one of the few people who can actually still recognize her as a unicorn. And part of that shows that she never, she she wasn't ruined by the cynicism of her lived experiences. She there's still a part of her that still believes in in magic and beauty and wonder. So that's the part of her that still is able to see the unicorn. And then we also have Schmendrick, who's cursed to immortality because he's just an incompetent wizard. 
And he's not sure he's ever going to be able to find what he needs. And every piece of evidence he encounters shows him he's probably never going to. You know, when when, when Mabrook sees him, he immediately recognizes him as the famously incompetent wizard. The unicorn says herself, like, I can't give you the thing you want, which is to turn you into a real wizard. So we've got all of these different characters here who are really grappling with what they want, and it's seeming completely out of reach. But I agree with Brian as well that there is... There is some positivity woven into it as well, because ultimately Schmendrick does find power in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the happy ending of this story is a real, like like Brian said, it's bittersweet. Because also um, uh, Prince Lear, who becomes King Lear, he just wants to run off and spend the rest of his days chasing the unicorn and says he'll be perfectly happy if he never finds her again, just as long as he's constantly looking for her. But everybody else is like, nah, man, you got a kingdom to run. Like, it doesn't work that way. Like, yes, this town sucks, but like, you have an opportunity to like turn this into a beautiful thing. And he reluctantly agrees that he's got other responsibilities and he can't go out chasing this unicorn. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I think you're talking about Schmendrick specifically. Um, his manif- His magic only manifests, starts to manifest effectively when he is acting selflessly right yeah right and and realizing that it's not about him that he's actually able to do stuff um and same to same to extent to Lear too because initially all his heroic stuff is to win the beautiful lady and, and it's about his mm-hmm. self-image when then when he starts to realize it's it's beyond that he actually has to sacrifice it's not the risk it's the sacrifice that's the real thing um then he's able to sort of come into his true princedom and kinghood. Um, so I don't know how that, you know, resonates with you there, Brian, uh, in, in terms of that, like it, thinking outside of themselves is what makes them actually become, um, come into the fullness of their being. There's a, there's a very human thing about us not understanding what we really want until we get what we think we want. Yeah. And I think that that, that runs through a lot of this, like, Schmendrick didn't really want to turn her into a girl, right? He wanted to protect her. That was the only way the magic could find to protect her, but that's he didn't get what he wanted out of that. Um, Prince Lear certainly didn't want to become King Lear. Um, he wanted to marry he wanted to marry the unicorn. Or rather the the, the lady. The lady of mouth, yeah. 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 Um I'm not even sure in the end what Molly truly wanted. Um, that's not made plain to the reader. Um, certainly she didn't want to go back to the, the bandit life. Um, and she did get some, uh, I guess, boost to her beauty, um, following the dream with the, with the unicorn. But beyond that, um, it's not really clear, like what her final state is, but I think it's a really human thing for us to, to, to get where we think we want to be. And then decide that that's not satisfying and that's not fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Um, Or that in that position, um, we we maybe can't reach what we thought we could reach. You know, we put the ladder up against a tree and we climbed up to the top of the ladder, but we still can't pluck the apple that's all the way out on the branch because the ladder doesn't reach there. Um, Yeah. And I feel like in no way is that writ larger than with King Haggard. 
you know, because Keen Haggard is somebody who anything he's ever wanted, he's been able to get and nothing can bring him happiness. And it makes me think of the, the depressed billionaire or the person who has made it to the pinnacle of their career, but it's still not enough. And here's somebody who the only time he can even have like an inkling of joy is when he stands out on the balcony of his castle and sees that he has trapped all but one of the unicorns in the world in his ocean. And that is a humongous feat. And it only gives him a fraction of joy. Uh, So I think that like, that's that's a great example of this idea of we think that there are things that once I get X, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Once I get Y, I'll feel fulfilled. But it really just shows us that that's not the case. Like right. that that fulfillment comes from something else. Yet somewhere in there, very barely, is an inkling of something human. Well, I mean, you already talked it's human, but compassion, right? He actually rescued the infant Lear, and maybe it's because he recognized he's, his role in the story is to be the evil monarch, even if it's subconsciously. But he reckon, he raised the baby, the infant Lear, and Lear actually does love his adopted father and wants his adopted father's approval, right? Um, but knows he's not likely to get it. So there's something in Haggard that it just, he knows he's irredeemable, but if he tried, maybe he could have, but he's accepted his role the same way that Mommy Fortuna has accepted her fate as to be you know, um, destroyed by the harpy. Um, yeah. but, um, and I agree, Brian, that, um, Molly's a little bit more, um, uh, she's less defined, but in some ways her, what she gets is she gets to be not cynical anymore. Right. Uh, and she's had the, clearly the hardest life from the beginning, but she gets to not be cynical. And that's, that's, an amazing thing. <laughs> right. Well, also, I think Molly really desperately desired to be seen. And I don't think she was, she felt like she was seen or appreciated with Captain Cully and his band of merry men. But then when she joined up with the unicorn and was able to help out the unicorn on her journey, suddenly I think that gave her a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging and a sense of like, I'm not just this old hag that's only good to make stews. You know, I'm somebody who has real value and really brings something to this story. I no, I think I think that's right. Um the one thing that I would say didn't didn't necessarily ring didn't didn't strike me the right way in the book is that everyone every every major character only moves forward when they accept what's supposed to happen as it were. Ah. And so interesting for me I'm I'm really big about agency and the mm-hmm. consequence of choice. Um in 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 my own storytelling in my own writing in in the things that I enjoy reading um so I mean if, if you were to ask me uh, like I I despise um eldritch horror and lovecraftian horror because those are all about the the futility of human action in the in 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 the wider universe yes um and i feel like the the while i like the story very much you know what would have happened if haggard looking out over the sea would have decided to release the unicorns himself Mm -hmm. like it there's what would have happened if schmendrick had decided to act through through any of that time rather than just obeying king haggard 
Like there's there's a there's a, a shocking lack of agency, as though these aren't really people, but kind of shadow characters. What's interesting is that made them feel more human to me, not less. Um, like for example, if, if if we had had a moment where King Haggard's heart continued to grow like the Grinch, and then suddenly he decided to release the unicorns, that might have felt very faky and forced to me. So I I, I kind of liked that people had been um, somewhat. I don't I don't know if I want to say like beaten down by their life experiences enough to accept a certain role, but I do think in terms of agency, there's also power in accepting the reality of your situation. You know, when you focus on the things that you can and cannot control, if we're constantly raging against the things that we feel like we can't control, then at that point, we're only harming ourselves. So I think some of these characters are getting to a point where they realize, oh, this is this is the part of the story where I can make change. And I think at the end of the story, when we see Schmendrick and Prince Lear, who are navigating what their role in the... Um, and the climax of the story is, you know, Schmendrick is like, that's not my role. That's the role of the hero. And Prince Lear was like, you are right. That is the role of the hero. So I think with, with these different characters, they were finding the moments where they had the opportunity to impact the story with, with the things they were already bringing to it, if that makes sense. No, I could, I could certainly see that. So Brian, as somebody who's really interested in kind of the behind the curtains of world building. What do you think about the world building that's happening in this story? So as a writer, it strikes me as very micro world building. You know, you've got some nameless villages, you've got one town, you've got one, one castle, you've got one King. um, And you've got these kind of nameless, shapeless, regions around it that you know which is very like powered by the apocalypse draw maps and leave spaces yeah but it's also very anti the um when you open up a setting book and we have everything mapped out right. for you right and and, and uh, it's not a criticism i'm just you know this is an observation yeah, you know different styles yeah and it's perfectly fine because that this is a fairy tale right once upon a time there was a there was a unicorn and the unicorn lived in the forest you know it's you yeah. don't need more than that. I don't need to know whether they were traveling west or east. I don't need to know what the kingdom to the south looks like. I don't I don't need to know those things for this story. And one of the things I find with world building is sometimes people go into too much detail about places that you're never going to visit and never n- don't really need to understand. Preach. Um you know, I, I and this is this is coming from someone who knows way too much about certain areas of the Forgotten Realms. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I know them very, very well. Um, yeah. And I could tell you about trade routes and all, all different other kinds of stuff. But in terms of, you know, the stories that you're telling, you don't necessarily need to know all that stuff. And I read somewhere that there's more written about the Forgotten Realms than there have been written about countries that actually exist in our world. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, they, I mean, there are... There's somewhere between 200 and 300 novels that have come out about the Forgotten Realms. There are um, there countless are, setting books, right? And 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 there's even more when you count fan fiction and and other stuff yep. that's not official, right? So yeah, there, there are certainly you know there there are and there are countries that have risen and fallen since 
the Forgotten Realms were created, right? So, <laughs> right. Um, so I have a question for you then. In terms of finding a setting that's right for your game and your gaming group, do you have a an opinion on when it might be more appropriate for you to have something kind of loose and open, like the kind of setting we have in the um, in the Last Unicorn? Or when it might be a good idea to go to a published, detailed setting with with trade groups mapped out and the histories of the interactions between the different kingdoms. So I think that depends on a, on a number of different factors about an individual gaming group and the skills of the DM, right, or mm-hmm. GM, or let's not get into nomenclature, the person uh, yeah, narrating yeah. the story, right? And mm-hmm. part of that has to do with how much can I, as the storyteller, create on the fly as necessary. If I'm if that's not one of my skills then I don't want to lean on a setting that's very bare bones, mm-hmm. right? Um, unless there is something built into either the game system or the setting that allows me to randomly generate stuff on the fly. You know, here's a town generation table. Here's a, yeah. you know, if you're playing a game that's, you know, Star Trek themed, here's a planet generator, whatever it is, right? Because, you know, it's not just fantasy. There's all different kinds of role-playing games. Um, so part of it is skills based and part of it is, is what does your group want? Right. You know, if your group wants to play in the forgotten realms, uh, there's not going to be a substitute. They want to play in the forgotten realms. If they want to play in Galarian, they want to play in Galarian or Greyhawk or whatever other established world there is. Mm -hmm. But if they want a particular flavor of play, you either have to create the world that is going to embrace that flavor of play, or you have to find one that exists, right? whether it be Freeport or Aldis or whatever else. There's going to be... So, you know, if you want uh, a high sea pirates type campaign, there's at least three or four settings out there that will give you what you want. Yeah. Right? Um, But if you want, you know, dwarven politics and intrigue, that might not be there. You might have to create that on your own. Um, Some players like a really freeform kind of game. Some players really want to delve down into the nitty gritty and want to get involved into the local politics and trade and set up a shop and only go adventuring once a year and that kind of stuff. And so I think a lot of it boils down to how well do you know your own particular gaming group and what their wants and needs are? Um, Because sometimes as DMs, GM storytellers, we start from the wrong perspective of here's the game I want to run and let me find a group. Uh, rather than saying, here, I have a group. How do I create the best game for them? How do we work yeah. together to tell the best story? And so if I come and I say, well, here's my, you know, high politics, you know, kingdom shaking campaign that I want to run. And everybody would really just kind of run around the Shire and, and you know, pick apples. They're not going to, they're not, doesn't matter how good my setting is. They're not going to enjoy it. Um, and I think a lot of frustration in a lot of gaming groups is that mismatch at the very beginning yeah. of, of not opening up lines of communication. You know, there's a session zeros are not just about safety tools. They're also about making sure that everybody understands the starting point of the campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes you need more than one session zero. Uh, sometimes it's 0.1 and 0.2. Um, you know, to make sure that kind of everybody is on the same page about what they want out of the game. And if things are going to change, you know, how do we make sure it changes so that everybody's happy as we, as we proceed. Mm. And I suppose it's, um, 
you know, we always talk about DMs having some of their lonely fun, you know, like uh, doing all this creation and stuff like that. It's it's yeah. also maybe figuring out, maybe you have all that, but you figure out like when it's appropriate. We're talking about kingdom shaking or whatever. Is it happening off screen? And then certain things just then affect like, oh, well, suddenly the Shire, uh, you know, no one's buying apples anymore because no one's keeping the roads up because there's a war, you know, one county over. Um, and so they only ever see that. They never see the part of like the kings and and all that other stuff happening, and maybe that's uh, something that just you as DM doing, or maybe that's uh, maybe you have a, a different subset of your group that's playing at a different level in the same campaign world, uh, both in the D and D sense of the word or at, at the sort of narrative level. Um, uh, if you have, you know, unless you're talking about bespoke campaign settings for every single group, which is also possible, but again, it depends on how much time and and uh, mental energy you have for that kind of stuff. Oh, sure. And also in this story, we have uh, an adventuring party, but one in the adventuring party is a mythical creature. And, you know, at some point in our gaming experience, we've all probably run across the player who wants to play a unicorn or a dragon or something like that. So I'm curious, Brian, what are your thoughts on... Um, how and when to allow for PCs to play kind of mythical beasts rather than a, you know, sentient, two-legged, two-armed, theoretically, character. So I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't read this as an adventuring party. Yeah. Um, I read this as more proto-myth. Hmm. Like you're, and, and this is one of the things I, I enjoyed about the book is because I, I was able to let go of a lot of my D&D type thinking. Uh-huh. And and just kind of enjoy it as a story, because I think um, one of the things we lose in in a lot of role playing games is a sense of wonder. You know, oh well, here's another unicorn. Here's a here's a gorgon. Yeah, yeah. In the Greek sense, here's a gorgon. In the D and D sense, here's because those are, they're completely different monsters. Yep. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, here's a harpy. You know, how many XP am I going to get for killing it? Right? Because in D and D, it's not the Medusa; it's a Medusa. Right. Um, and th- and Gorgons are are bulls somehow. Um, <laughs> thanks, Gary. Metal uh, metal yeah. bulls. Metal right. bulls. Right. Um, but uh, and you know, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not taking a shot. It's just they're different things. Um, yeah. But what I mean is that you know. A lot of times in D&D, where we go straight to the mechanics of things uh-huh. and don't allow the story to grow into the story that it could be. Um, I am I am not of the opinion that, for example, every character in a party needs to be the same level, although that does create balance issues at the table. You know, sometimes it's fun to have a 15th level fighter along with your second level cleric, right, um, for a short amount of time. And so, while it didn't strike me as it, you know, clearly the 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 unicorn here is is an NPC, um, because she's not she's not really at the same level of just being. Forget about statistics wise until she she's transformed, right? When she's transformed, it's kind of like a guest player at the table, if you want to use a D and D analogy. But um, she doesn't know who she is, right? She doesn't remember her life before because, again, yeah. she's like a guest player. She wasn't there the last three sessions when you first met the unicorn. She doesn't know who you are. Um, she doesn't know what it's like to be in this body. She doesn't know what its capabilities are. 
but I think, you know, to go back to my original point, we, we lose a lot of the sense of, oh, wow, somebody just cast a spell to raise somebody from the dead. Somebody just cast a spell to visit the domains of the, of the gods. You know, all of that wonder gets lost and we start having arguments online about why everybody's not using, you know, cure spells every day and and um replacing all their technology with magic and well because there's supposed to be a sense of wonder it's magic right it's supposed yeah. to it's still supposed to be rare even in a high magic campaign and i say that with super sarcastic quotes for everybody that's listening <laughs> even in a high magic campaign magic is still supposed to be rare and wondrous and at a level that it's not accessible every day to everybody um uh, and so, you know, for me, I like, first I like because I, I like the book because the D&D unicorn is very clearly based on this kind of version of a unicorn, especially in fifth edition. Mm. But also it allows, it allows the reader to address a classic monster from, from a sense of wonder, mm. from a sense of uh, mystery, from a sense of immortality, uh, as a almost as a quasi divine being, and not just something, not just a stat block. Truly mythological in this case. So, and in that case, it may be that those games that you know that we're all sort of um, all meaning the three of us here uh, are originally come through are not necessarily the optimal. The the traditional D anD D, the traditional. It's not to say it can't be done, but it's it's not playing to the strengths of those those game systems and so maybe it's more for this uh games that are more story forward a pbta based system a fate based system something like that that might be more appropriate to run this uh uh, the last unicorn rpg if you will although i will say mommy fortuna cast sleep on the unicorn she does and in old school DD, sleep only works on creatures with four hit die or less and in old school D&D, unicorns have four hit die. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. So that scene would work exactly as written yep. in an old school D&D game. Oh, sure. Yeah. sure. And, you know, I mean, obviously, um, uh, Lear is um, a paladin. You know, he doesn't necessarily realize. Well, no, he actually, he's the one who actually, he's one of the people who explicitly understands that he's a hero in a story, right? Uh, he doesn't necessarily understand what a story what what hero can be, but he says the hero does this, and hero has certain skills, right? He has that, that whole long passage, um, and in the end, I think almost um, uh, Molly is almost almost more of the audience stand in than any of the other characters are. You might think, oh, it's yeah. Schmendrick initially, but Molly is the one who is sort of the most thoughtful, the least bounded by um, like a role that she's meant to play. You know? Yeah. And in this story, we magic seems a lot more free form than it does in Dungeons and Dragons. Like, yes, we hear um, Schmendrick refer to, I'm going to try this spell of unlocking. I'm going to try this. He like, there are specific spells he's trying that he's like, yeah, he keeps messing up. Um, but there's also this kind of like free form, you know, magic do as you will thing. Is there a place for a f- more free form magic system in a more trad D&D style game? Maybe. Um, you know, D&D is still, even in 5th edition, very tied to the Vancean kind of... Mm-hmm. Cast and forget. Cast and forget um, levels of spells instead of kind of, I'm going to enhance this existing spell. Um, 
But also D&D is very much tied to, at least in the current edition, um, pure success and failure, right? Mm, yes. So the spell opens the lock or it doesn't open the lock. It yep. cures the disease or doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, be- because it's magic, capital M, um, unless there's an opposed role, it works, right? It removes the disease, it heals the, it heals the damage, it... it unlocks unless there's un, uh, a countervailing magical force that might oppose it in many cases things will just work right i would also add that in dnd as it's currently written you're either powerful enough to cast a spell or you're not mm-hmm. there's no trying to cast a spell that's more powerful than you you either can or cannot cast a fifth level spell right mm-hmm. and i think there are putting on my designer hat for a second there are ways to bend those boundaries i don't i don't know necessarily that i'd break them um because you have to be okay with your fifth level sorcerer you know trying to pull out a seventh level spell right and what what's the cost of that right mm-hmm. and so you know yeah you could write up a rule system for it but you don't want it to become the norm because otherwise all your class levels are meaningless you have people complaining that you know well, okay well, now what's my fighter supposed to do um but you know, in 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 the current sense of D and D, obviously no, it's not something that you you do. You know, you cast the spell and it works or it doesn't. Um, there's no oh, I'm going to try and cast this spell and and you know make this sort of skill check and maybe be able to cast a spell a level higher or whatever. No, D and D is not really built that way because D and D is built on a set of reliable expectations as right. a, as a rule set. Right. Magic is a technology more so than capital M magic in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, But again, I think that speaks a little bit to the lack of wonder in magic in D&D. You know, there's a the reliability makes it so that everybody knows what's going to happen. Right. Oh, I cast this spell. There's a reliable outcome. There may be some variability in damage. Right. I cast fireball. It's going to do this number of dice of damage. I used a higher level slot this time. Okay, it's going to do more damage, right? But there isn't a chance that um, because of the way I cast it, oh, it's not going to hit that guy. Unless I made a a specific choice not to hit that particular enemy. Um, And so I think in that sense, no, it doesn't line up with D&D, but that's okay, right? Because D&D is meant as... it's, It's a game system, right? And systems... All systems rely on dependability. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not a system anymore, right? They're they're more like guidelines, as the saying goes, than rules. Um, so you need for for a game, um, in particular, in particular, a game that that needs to have portability from table to table and right. uh, a sense of shared experience. Right. You know, when you say I cast fireball, everybody know what, knows what that means. When you make the joke, I didn't ask how big the room was. I said I cast fireball. Everybody right. knows what that means. Especially when you get to seeing like organized play, adventurers league, and stuff like that. Yeah, the expectations have to be really managed across the board. Um, and, and I guess it is important to realize also, like you know, D and D, the word game is still in there, right? And so games have to have uh, a sense of uh, fundamental fairness, not necessarily balance, but fairness, right? Um, like I, I do this thing. And I'm not going to get hosed for doing this thing um, because I did it by the book, <laughs> right? So to speak. Um, sure. 
Uh, well, it depends on the game system well, and the expectations that are attached to the system. You're saying that within sure. within the expectations of the system, right? Like DCC, everyone expects yeah. to get hosed by their magic at some point, <laughs> but, but not in the mm-hmm. edition. So, yeah, but I, but I also think it's perfectly fair, you know, to continue the the gaming side of the conversation for a dungeon master to sit down with their with their group before the game starts and say, "Look, um, in the world we're in, sometimes magic has weird effects. Sometimes." a spell might not go off. Sometimes a spell might go off and you'll notice something weird about it. Sometimes I might ask you to make an arcana check when you cast a fireball spell. And if, and depending on what your, your role is, something additional might happen. You know, it's perfectly fair to have those conversations. Again, as long as you're managing expectations among everybody at the table, because some players might embrace that uh, spontaneity and that unpredictability, while others might say, well, if that's going to happen, I, maybe I don't want to play a spellcaster in this in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, maybe, I, maybe I just want to be Bob the Fighter. Um, which, mm-hmm. again, those are perfectly valid choices, but I think it, they depend on open communication between all the players at the table, including the DM. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, because yeah, the DM is a player. And then also just the... Uh, within that group recognizing what your group dynamics are it's like you know what this is you know without making anyone feel like oh they're outcast like you know what i can tell already this is not the game for brian because this is the thing that we're trying to do and i'll talk to him about it and say do you want to do this but this is the expectation i'm setting uh, but it might not be to your taste you know so um all right well we're uh, coming up on the hour any last thoughts on uh the last unicorn brian i one of the things I really liked about the book, uh, I was mentioning before about the sense of wonder, is the idea that um, people and creatures can be more than they seem. And that one's eyes need to be open. Well, one's perception needs to be open to the possibility of additional reality. Um, you know, both with the harpy and the unicorn, not everybody could see their real natures. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, at the at the carnival you know there were creatures that were more rather that seemed to be more than they were um and that 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 perception was kind of nudged but even among um even with king haggard you know that he was one of the guard one of his own guards the with the cat and the cat gaining the ability to speak the 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 fact the idea that oh a thing can be changed from what it seems to be even temporarily by simply opening perception mm-hmm. and the em- embracing itself. the possibility of other reality. Right. The clock, the skull, all mm-hmm. of those, all the things. And the cat is a lovely scene. Um, well, very well said, Brian. Um, any last thoughts there, Jeff? If, and, um, yeah, I think one other thing would be, and this kind of ties into what Brian was talking about earlier with, um, with orcs and drow, but also I think um, it's important to recognize that not every monster or adversary or whatever feels the same about the situation they're in. And the the thing that I think really illustrated that beautifully in The Last Unicorn is in, is in Mommy Fortuna's Midnight Carnival. We've got all these sad animals that have been enchanted to look like something else, but then we've got that spider. <laughs> And that spider has been cast to think that has been has been an illusion has been put on it so that this this spider thinks that she is Arachne and she is weaving the most beautiful web in the world. And this spider desperately wants to believe that illusion. 
And when the chapter ends and everything has fallen apart, they tell us that the only sound remaining in that area was the sound of a spider weeping. And it was such a beautiful moment, but I also think from a game design and adventure design and, and GM perspective, it's good to remember that like, let's maybe we'll have one character who is actually okay with this situation or just, just subvert the expectation of what the characters want or what the characters expect with just one of the NPCs, perhaps. Mm-hmm. It might lead to some interesting storytelling. Brian, uh, as we uh, head out here, uh, are, are there any projects that are upcoming that you would uh, like to talk about or are able to talk about? Well, I'm working on a couple things for the Dungeon Masters Guild, which I'll be putting out once I once they're closer to finished. I'll be putting out uh, some announcements about on my Twitter. Okay. Um, I do have a project that's turned in and has been turned in for a while, but is currently under non-disclosure agreement, so I can't talk about it even a little bit. Um. Uh, if I were to even hint, I'd get in a lot of trouble. So go. I have to be very careful not to not to share any part of it. But I'm oh, really I get excited. what you're hinting at. What? I'm very excited to be able to talk about it once I can. Um, but unfortunately, I can't talk about it yet. And um, yeah. you know, I'm as always. I'm looking forward to what's next. Um, you know, I am. What I, I what, when people ask me what I do, I say I'm a I'm a full time part time freelancer because I have a full time job. Um, I am a part time freelancer, and I'm it's always part time for me. It doesn't take up most of my week between you know the day job and 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 the kids, um, and you know not being um, uh, left by my wife for not taking care of my end <laughs> of the day job and the kids. Um, and so uh, you know, but the the things that I do get to do you know are always exciting and 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 and. I just wish there wasn't so much turnaround time between when I turn it in and when I get to talk about it because right, it's right. right. And, so, and so then people should look for you on Twitter for any announcements then. And, yes. and, and so what is your Twitter handle, Brian? Uh, my Twitter handle is at Brian Cortillo, uh, spelled exactly like my name, no spaces, no underscores, no periods or anything like that. Um, that's me. That's how you find me. Um, uh, my Instagram is empty, so don't bother following me there. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, you know, if, if you have any questions, um, you can always reach out to me via Twitter. I'm happy to answer them. Not that I have answers all the time, but, you know, um, I'm happy to engage. There we go. Brian Cortillo, B-R-I-A-N-C-O-R-T-I-J-O. That's me. All righty. All right. And if people want to talk to us, give us feedback, you can uh, drop us a line at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or look for us also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yeah, if you'd like to show us your support, you can head on over to OnlyFans.com slash Appendix and Book Club. Oh, wait, no, it's Patreon.com. That's right. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't started our OnlyFans account yet. Right. But uh, we do have our Patreon.com slash Appendix and Book Club. Our patrons there are able to vote on the books that we cover. They are able to join us for our, um, for our pre-show book club that we do with our patrons that we record and then release to our patrons. I would like to give a shout out to a few of our new patrons, Stanley J. Ward, James D'Alessio, and Anthony Tui. Thank you so much for your recent support. We'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons, Darren Dumez, Derek Varn, Clay Temple Media, David Willems, David Moreau, Sean P. Kelly, and Jonathan Nickel. Thank you for your support. And today we are joined by Rick Byrne and Adam Stiers at our patron book club and had a great conversation uh, prior to this recording that will be released to our Patreon to listen to over there. Um, Also, in terms of our patrons voting on our upcoming shows, 
Uh, the votes are in for episode 125, recovering Michael Shea's A Quest for Symbolists. And for episode 126, we are cover- covering William Hope Hodgson's Karnacki the Ghost Finder. And Hoy, what is going to go up for vote for episode 130? All right, we're going to revisit the idea of Bad Messiahs. So this is Bad Messiahs 2. The first book for a vote is Glenn Cook's The Fire in His Hands. Then we'll have uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, uh, Arkady Strugatsky's Hard to Be a God, and Roger Zelazny's Lord of Light. So Perfect. Get on out there and vote. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been really uh, fun and an honor, Brian. Uh, we hope to talk to you uh, out there in the real world or on the web. Uh, and I hope you had a good time, too. Thanks, yeah, for, thanks for, for being me. on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.